So we made it through the first two verses of Romans chapter 12 last week. Um, Probably familiar verses to most of us in here. And we'll be looking at verses 3 to 13 today, and then uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll finish up the chapter, chapter 12. But uh, just before I begin, um, usually after the service, people always give me feedback, you know, things that they've thought about throughout the service. Um, and thinking about it this week, my encouragement to you is I generally don't want this just to be a um, me up here giving just a lecture. You know, if you have thoughts and if you think of stuff during this Sunday school hour, you know, raise your hand and say something. I think that's a good interaction. It's good for me because there's tons of stuff that I don't think about when I'm preparing for this that other people do throughout the week and in the service. So my encouragement to you is, you know, don't be scared. Everyone in here, you know, everyone knows everyone. So, you know, raise your hand and say something. That, that's my encouragement to you. And um, if you have a disagreement or something you differ on, you don't want to say during the Sunday school class, then feel free to say it to me afterwards. I tend to think I'm, I'm kind of approachable. I hope I am. So if you have a, dif- a disagreement or see something different, let me know. And uh, we'll, we'll go from there. So that's just my encouragement. It, the interaction is always welcome as we go through these things. So let me go ahead and read the first eight verses here, Romans 3 to 8. Um, would anyone want to volunteer to read those? If not, I can go ahead and read them. Yes, 3 through 8. Thank you, Mick. Thank you, Mick. So, really, this is a continuation of the first two verses. I think it's important to remember verse 1. I think, really, the crux of this whole passage and everything stems from it. Verse 1, living sacrifice. Is that sacrifice spelled right? I always question myself whenever I spell something. But, really, living sacrifice. That is the crux, I think, of this passage that the Apostle is conveying to his readers through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And once we understand giving ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord, the things that Paul is going to list here, the rest of chapter 12, will certainly make more sense. Once we give ourselves completely over to the Lord in an acceptable and in a holy manner, the things that we will go over today will make much more sense. And I think will naturally stem and flow from us as Christians. So, we've been commanded by Paul, through inspiration, to commit our bodies as a sacrifice to the Lord. This will result in the Lord directing us in His will. Again, at the end of chapter 2, or excuse me, at the end of verse 2, to know what the Lord wants for us in our life, first and foremost, we must give ourselves to Him. Verse 
3, we see here, For I say, so again, Paul, giving commandments to the readers in Rome, through the grace given to me. Paul's recognition that everything that has come to him is from the Lord. His apostleship, his gifts, his writing abilities, his ministry are from the Lord by grace. In fact, Paul recognizes this earlier in Romans chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, he says this, "...through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ." So Paul first and foremost recognizes that the ministry he's been given has been given to him from the Lord through the instrument or through grace. And it is because of this grace that Paul is faithfully obeying and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ primarily to the Gentiles. And there's also a Jewish audience here in Romans. So as Paul was given grace, so... We have been given the same grace from God by Christ through the Holy Spirit. And I think that's important to remember. This is a triune matter, this giving of grace to believers. So Paul has been given grace. We have been given grace to everyone who is among you. And this is everyone in the manner of believers. So if this letter is going to believers and unbelievers in the church, this everyone here would insinuate grace can only be given from God to believers, those who have his spirit. And he says this, not to think of himself or yourself more highly than he ought to think. So why should we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought? Well, we've been given gifts through grace So how is it anything that we do? Yes, standing up here teaching, I had to go about this week preparing my lesson. But everything that I've been given has been given from the Lord. So how could I be in any haughty or high or unhumble manner come before you and think that's anything that I do? It's through the grace of the Holy Spirit. Joseph Benson said this. He says, On the account of any special gift conferred on him or any public office assigned to someone in the church, do not be lifted up with pride on account of it, or think it is of his own wisdom or understanding, so as to take upon himself more authority than he ought. I think it's very easy, even in the church, even amongst believers, it's easy for us to think we have more to do with it than we do. And we'll go through this a little later, is I think there is also the, the bad or the malady of the situation by completely casting off the gifts that you've been given. But we'll see that here as we get down um, specifically to verses um, 9 to 13. And then he says, Do not think more highly than you ought to think of yourself, but think soberly. Think soberly. Strong's commentary says this, of soberly. It's to exercise self-control, to put a moderate estimate upon oneself, think of oneself soberly, to curb one's passions. So, in the context here, we need to soberly measure our gifts. What have we been given 
from the Lord to further the kingdom of Christ, what have we been given? What gifts we're supposed to soberly or in a measured state see what our gifts are and then go from there? It's not to underestimate them, which is wrong, which a lot of times we do in a false humility, but it's also not to overestimate them, which we do in a, self, in a sense of self-confidence, which, of course, is wrong. Let's see here. If someone comes up to you and compliments you about something that you did, one of the gifts that you have in the Lord, it is clearly wrong to boast, but it's also wrong to blow it off. I think a lot of times we have... And being scared of taking credit for something we don't see to be fit for, we have a false sense of humility. If someone comes up to me and says, oh, you know, uh, great lesson today, or if I sing, great job singing, something like that, or you, you've been doing very well ministering to the church, and you say, oh, you know, it's nothing, it, it, it's nothing that I do, I think that's a false sense of humility. That's not correct. Maybe we, our proper response is to say, well, praise the Lord, or thank you, in that sense of the word. So there is an overconfidence, but there's also an underconfidence that's incorrect here, that I think Paul is dealing with when it says to measure the gifts that we have been given. And then he goes on to finish this verse. He says, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So faith here is not the faith that we have been given at justification by the Holy Spirit. So this isn't the faith that resides in every single one of us, but this is more pertaining to a faith as in ability. So what Paul is saying here is that every person has been given a measure of faith or measure of ability to be able to work and give for the kingdom of God. So faith is in as in abilities. And that's completely obvious that some people have more abilities than others. There's some people that teach at seminaries that are highly, highly skilled in studying the Word of God and giving it out and instructing and bettering people's understanding of the Word of God. That's just how it is. That's how the Holy Spirit has given out gifts and abilities. So God has given to some more faith or more abilities than others. But that doesn't mean to say, oh, well, I haven't been given any faith or any ability. If you think that, then that would be a great sign that you're not a believer. Because God has given an ability or a measure of faith to every single person that has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So think here, just in layman's terms, think in terms of baking. You take a measuring glass, and for the best recipe... The exact measurement must be taken. You put in what's needed, nothing more, nothing less, to complete the job. In a similar manner, God has given to each saint, every single Christian that has the Holy Spirit, that is saved in Christ, the perfect amount of faith to accomplish what their God-given task and assignment in this life is. Some people have been given more. I'm sure the Apostle Paul had an incredible amount of faith poured out to him for his mission, as compared to some of us in here. As compared probably to most of us in here. In fact, all of us, if we compare ourselves to the Apostle Paul. But some of us in here have been given more than others of us in here. Listen to this. Uh, This is Galatians 2, 7 and 9. As Paul is writing to the Galatians, he says this, 
But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcision effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing, and listen to this, this is the important part, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So imagine here Paul and Barnabas are kind of the outsiders. They were not the original apostles in the days or in the time of Christ. But Peter, uh, James, and I think this is James the brother of Jesus, not James the brother of John. I think at this point he'd already been killed. But these are three pillars of the early church. But they recognized that Paul had been given grace or a measure of faith or an ability to take the gospel to the Gentile nations. You see here is that these three men, Peter, James, and John, recognized Paul and Barnabas' abilities or the measurement of faith that they have been given. And that's verse 3. Does anyone have any comments or questions before I continue to 4 and 5? All right. Well, verse 4, Paul says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. If what Paul is saying is true, it would only be logical that in the body of Christ there are differing degrees of faith, differing gifts, and differing uses of those gifts. And this is, we've already kind of covered some of this ground. Believers are all one in Christ, that is, Christ is the head of the body, and we are the subsequent parts. Paul, right into the Colossians, says this in Colossians 1.18, He also, that is, Christ, is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the first born from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So a recognition of our gifts and the faith that we have been given is a recognition that Christ is the head of the church. Everything that we have been given is for the glory and for the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ. And that's what Paul wants to remind his readers here. And we'll go through here. And Paul, I think, brilliantly uses the illustration of the body to represent the church. And it's not something that each and every one of us are not familiar with in here. We're well familiar with the body of Christ. But it's a recognition that he is the head or over all things in the church. Uh, John MacArthur, in his commentary, had uh, some doctor wrote a book in 1980 just about the anatomy of the human body, how complex it is, how everything is different, how even down to the very basic cells in our body are different one from another. Obviously, the heart's different than the brain. They have different functions. A foot's different than a hand. But yet, at the very same time, there is a similarity. I'm no expert, and I'm probably going out too far than I should. I probably should read it. But basically, you can replicate from one cell in a human body, from that DNA, the rest of the body. 
So you see how every cell is different, but at the very core, the very basis of that DNA, you can replicate the whole body. So I think with believers and with Christians, there's a diverse group in here, spiritually and thought-wise and mentally. Every one of us is different, but yet we have a core DNA. That is, we recognize Christ as the head of the church. We all have the Holy Spirit of God. We all have the mission of furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thought that was a, a pretty important example. Think here for a moment, and let's just step out into the realm of thought here. Think here for a moment. This is not just applicable to Bible Chapel of Delhi Hills. This is to the Catholic Church as a whole. And this is Losey Catholic Church. Catholic Church as in universal around the world. This is true for the church around the world. Whether it's the believer in China, in Europe, Mexico, the United States, anywhere around the world, we are connected in the body of Jesus Christ. That's pretty remarkable to think about. That there's millions of people around the world right now, depending what time zone they're in, granted, whether it's in China or Japan, somewhere. But every single one of us is different, yet we are all one in Jesus Christ. He is the head. Each congregation is a part of that universal body. But think here also, as each congregation is an individual body in themselves with Christ with the head. You see what I say? You see what I'm saying here? This Bible chapel is just a microcosm of the universal church. From all around the world, Bible chapel has people who are the hand, who are the legs, who are the feet, who are the heart, who are the brain. And that's just a microcosm of the whole entire universal church. But it's still a common theme is what? Our DNA is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Whether we go over to Africa or Asia, brothers and sisters in Christ have things in common across cultural bounds. That is, we recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's true diversity. It's not diversity in physical characteristics. It's diversity in spiritual gifts and mental aptitude that we've been given to further the kingdom of Christ. And kind of just a side note, I was thinking to myself... It is refreshing, it's wonderful that Bible chapels, not the monolithic church around the world, that there is differences in different churches around the world. And let me give you an example of what I'm saying here. Paul was experienced with this. I think Paul was experienced with this. The way he went about ministering to the Jews in Rome or Jerusalem was different than the way he addressed the Athenians at the Oropagus in Acts chapter 17. So as different people are different around the world, so oftentimes the approaches of the gospel and the gifts that are required to minister to those congregations will also be different. God gives gifts to individuals around the world to further his kingdom. And kind of contrast Paul and Peter. Peter was a wonderful apostle, but would it have been better, but would he have been better for the task that had been assigned for Paul, who was well-educated, well-rounded, Versed, for example, in Acts 17, with the Greek scholars, with the Greek religion, and Peter, who really was intelligent of himself, but was not the scholar of Paul. You see how it's kind of working here with this body analogy, is that Peter had wonderful abilities, but his measurement, his gift of faith, was clearly different than that of Paul's. And that goes for each and every one of us in here. It goes for Tom, it 
It goes for Mick. It goes for Becky, Mike, myself, every one of us in here. Again, to repeat, we have common DNA, but each one of us has a different gift to help further the kingdom of God. And I think here at the end of verse 4, this important word of function. I think function. The New King James Version has function. Uh, I can't remember. I looked up some other translations. I can't remember what the exact word is that they use. Uh, Maybe deed. I think deed is the ESV or NASB. But what is your function? What is your deed inside of the church? What is your function? I think we'll try to answer that or at least give ourselves a better clue as to what we are supposed to do in the church. And then verse 5, So we being many are one body in Christ and individual. Excuse me, and individually members of one another. So kind of just to summarize what I've said. And then before I continue to verse 6 to 8, anyone have any comments or questions? Yes? Correct. Yes, Becky. That's about, yeah, definitely. Very valid point. Well, the world's pushing us to think individuality. We don't God. We can do it ourselves. That inner manifestation. If I'm a positive affirmative or if I trust this person or that paragon or whatever, that I can heal myself when Jesus fell on the body. Yep, exactly. It is a satanic ploy. It's a satanic ploy. All right. Well, uh, verse 6 to 8, Paul says this, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now this may, at first, for me, you see this word prophesy and you scratch your head. So let's deal with it here. Having established the undisputed evidence that every believer has gifts, that is, gifts singular or plural, Given by grace from the Lord, Paul now stresses the application of them. So we know that every believer has a gift. Now every believer has to exercise their gift. Prophecy. We deal with this word prophecy here. 
Let us use them. If prophecy... I forget. I, I didn't write down who wrote this. No, excuse, this, is, uh, this is an Acts. Excuse me. By prophesying is meant not foretelling things to come. Though this gift was bestowed upon some as Agabus and others in the Christian church. So I, this is actually a quote. I didn't write down who um, said this quote. But this is not prophecy in the sense that we think of prophecy as receiving divine revelation from the Lord. And there was a couple instances in the New Testament where people received prophecy to warn others of impending doom. I think it's Acts chapter 11. Agabus, who I think that's the only time he's mentioned in the scriptures, is given a warning by God to tell to the church in Judea and Jerusalem of a great famine that was going to come in the time of uh, Quintinius Caesar, I think is who was, on, who was ruling as governor at the time. So Agabus actually received a prophecy outside of scripture that was then given to the early church. But I would say for most of us, if not all of us in here, we do know that the canon is closed and people no longer are receiving prophecy. So this word has to mean something else other than prophecy as we usually think of it. This generally, prophecy means to expound or to preach the scriptures. But preaching the gospel is here designated, which is the sense of the word in many places of scripture, especially in the New Testament. Now such who have this gift of prophecy, or of opening and explaining the scriptures, ought to make use of it. So prophecy is a person who is able to open the scriptures, and expound and explain the current given word of God. Not coming up with something new, but looking in the scriptures and expounding and giving it to the audience or the people that they're presenting it to. And there was a couple cases in the Old Testament where this would be the way a prophet would go about delivering the word of the Lord. It did not have to be that every time they had to receive a revelation or a dream from the Lord for them to prophesy. 2 Kings 22, one of the more striking narratives in the Old Testament Uh, King Josiah was on the throne, and if you're familiar with anything with Josiah, he was a godly and a righteous man. And his grandfather was Manasseh, one of the most evil kings in Judean history. And then his father Ammon served for like two years, and he got got killed by the Lord because he was evil. But Josiah was righteous, and when they were in the temple... Josiah had instructed the rebuilding of the temple because it basically had been in ruins for the last 50 years. And as they're digging through the rubble of the temple, the priest find a book. Anyone know what that book was? It was the book of the law. The children of Israel had not had the book of the law, the book of Moses, for 60 years. And when they found this book of the law... They opened it up, the priest who found it, and all the other priests wept, Josiah wept, and then it says in the middle of the chapter that Josiah commanded them to go to a prophetess to see what the word of the Lord was. And basically, the prophetess, had she did receive revelation from the Lord, but what it was is basically saying, repent and turn back to the word of the Lord. And I think that's a, that's a great example here of this prophetess, is that Basically, her instruction was to go back and read the Word of God. Go back and repent. Go back. What does the Pentateuch say? What do the Ten Commandments say? 
So I think that instills in us what this word prophecy here means to preach, to go back, to expound and open the word of God. And that's especially given the New Testament example of the word prophecy. Then we see here, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. So some people have been given more of an ability to open the scriptures and make them known. Others have been given a less ability. But every person that has been given the gift of prophecy or of preaching or expounding the word is supposed to do it according to their ability and gift. And then we see here, verse 7, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. What is ministry? Well, commentators think that this is being a deacon. So if you're a deacon or a servant in the church, if you're going to be a minister, then minister. If that's your calling, then minister. And then we see, he who teaches in teaching. Now, this is kind of an interesting one. You would think that prophesying or preaching or expounding the word of God would be the same as teaching, but not necessarily. This is instructing or communicating knowledge. So, this could be Sunday school teachers or instructors which taught regarding doctrine. And some uh, commentators, they used um, New England churches, so churches the last couple hundred years, they would have a preacher or a pastor who would expound the word of God, but then they would also have a head teacher that was separate from the pastor. And their job was, was basically to teach doctrine, kind of like a school teacher or a Sunday school teacher, as we said. That was the job of a teacher. So there are different roles between the prophesying and the teaching. And I think we even see that the difference between preaching the word of God and teaching the word of God. I would say this setting more right here is teaching the word of God. But then if you get in a pulpit setting, I would say that's more of the preaching of the word of God or convicting. Does that make sense? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's up for debate, I guess. That's up for personal opinion. Yeah, good point. The other thing I was going to mention, and I know we're running out of time, but when we, when we read this, it reminds us that Alvin's teaching and Zachary's teaching is the same thing. It's Correct. Correct. I mean, yeah, my teaching here is obviously going to be far different than a university professor in Hebrew. You know, he blew me away. So every person has been given an ability to teach what is proper if you've been given that. And then we see here a word that we don't often use in modern language, exhortation, to exhort. This word properly denotes one who urges to the practical duties of religion in distinction from one who teaches in doctrine, one who presents the warnings and the promises of God to excite men to the discharge of their duty. So I would really just say encouragement. There are people who are very encouraging or exhorting to continue on in what you have been assigned to do. And then we see one who gives with liberality. Giving, the one who gives 
and this is kind of a distinction here that some commentators make, this may be that giving either your role inside of the church, so think here of a church treasurer or a church secretary, someone who's financially minded or an accountant's mind where they can give out the church's money properly in an efficient and effective manner. But also I think this has in context here of giving in general, giving to the church or giving to those of us around here. And there are obviously some people who have the gift of giving far more than the others. I would say every person, if you're, not a, if you're a Christian and you're not giving of some sort, then I would say that that's probably an issue. But some people have a generous heart, have the ability and the means uh, to be able to give, not even money, but also time and resources to the kingdom of God. So I think it's a heart of giving that God has given some over others. And then we see at the end here, He who leads with diligence. So, you're a leader. You're one who is set over others. I would say elders. You could probably say teachers. Uh, They're a leader of some sort. They're instructing. They're telling their classmates, or or, excuse me, they're telling their students or the people in their audience uh, what to think, how to think, go about thinking. So I would say those are leaders. And then we see here, With diligence. So it's not just one thing to lead. Oh, go lead. No, you're supposed to lead with diligence. It means here that they should be attentive to the duties of their vocation and engage with ardor in what was committed to them. Attentive to their duties. So if you're a teacher, if you're a leader, be attentive to your duties. One of the most catastrophic things for any organization, any church, any country, are leaders that are not diligent. As we see that all across the board, as we see it throughout history, is people and leaders who are not diligent. And then finally, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. One who can take care of the older, sick, helpless. This is not necessarily in the sense of keeping alive or like nourishing but it's encouraging them, extending sympathy, coming alongside of them, attending to needs. And I could think of an example for every single one of these of gifts. But I will think of one here because I think it's maybe a little difficult to understand what exactly this is. I think Tanya and Jerry Glendening have this gift of showing mercy to others. That's my opinion. I think that's probably the opinion of others in here. They're very, they do a very nice job extending Mercy, sympathy, encouraging people, the older, you know, the sick. So that's really the exercise of mercy here, and with cheerfulness, with a happy, with a joyful attitude, extending it to others. So I think here in application, maybe you think to yourself, well, how do I find out what my gifts are? It's not necessarily an easy thing for us to be able to do. I think most people have an idea of what their God-given gifts are, but be diligent, uh, but we are commanded to be diligent, if you do know, to exercise them because you'll be held accountable for what you do and do not do with your gifts. So just a point of application here. Give me three minutes. Man, time flies by. I can't believe it. Maybe for me, maybe not for you. But here's some, some ways to find our gifts. And this is the help of uh, John MacArthur. Obviously, first and foremost, as I said at the beginning... How do we find our gifts? 
It's by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. It's by giving our whole persona to the Lord for his will. And it's only by doing that that we'll find what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Number two, of course, is pray for wisdom and seek for nothing. Obviously, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do you have me to go? And then examine your heart. Examine your heart's desire. First Timothy, Paul addressing here, uh, Timothy, First Timothy 1.3 is, a, I think, a good example of this. He says this to Timothy, This is a faithful saying, If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So it's not a desire out of envy, out of jealousy, out of power, but it's a desire that I think this is what the Lord has called me to do. So what are our heart's desires? What do we enjoy doing in the body of Christ? And then number four, seek confirmation. What has God blessed? I think this is a big one. Is A lot of times, maybe we don't know it first, or maybe we're still struggling with what the gifts of God are. But what has God blessed us with? What has God blessed us? If he's given us the blessing of giving and he's given us more things to give, then I would say that's a gift of giving. If he's blessed us with the ability to teach or to uh, exhort others and those things continue to come to us, I would say that's probably your God-given gift. So seek confirmation what God has blessed you with. And then number five, wholeheartedly serve him. And this is something I think we often struggle with. With our gifts, we get worn out. We get tired with what we're doing. But it is a commandment from the time we're saved to the time of our death to wholeheartedly serve the Lord. 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul says this to young Timothy. He says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God. Kindle afresh, rejuvenate the gift of God that is inside of you. And didn't get as far as I wanted to. Hopefully we'll conclude next week. And then um, the week after that, we'll see what we're going to do. Uncle Ray won't be here, so someone will be teaching. So if you have anything, please see me afterwards. I appreciate it. Thank you.